Hi, y'all. Welcome back to Peachy Keen. I'm Vivian Liddell, and this is my podcast. I hope you are all literally weathering well. Three hurricanes since our last episode, so that's pretty intense. The school where I teach was closed for two and a half days for Irma. So combining that with the eclipse and nature has really put the semester for us in a tailspin. I'm a planner, so so much for that this go-round. I'm trying to roll with it, but honestly, when the routine gets messed up, I get stressed out. But clearly, there are millions of folks dealing with devastation, so I'm going to count myself as lucky with only some minor property damage and a messed up semester. Here at my house, we were pretty much weenies after two days without power, and Puerto Rico has been without almost the entire island, over 3 million people for 11 days now. I wish I could give more, but better something than nothing, I gave 20 bucks to United for Puerto Rico, set up by their first lady, Beatrice Rosseo, and I encourage y'all to do the same putting a link on the Peachy Keen page for that. So, despite the wrench that Irma threw into my carefully planned syllabi, I've been enjoying the hell out of my feminist theory class, technically feminist theory and criticism in contemporary art. Anyway, I'm super proud to have spearheaded this thing. It's been my baby for the past two years. That's how long it's taken to get it into existence. Now it's in the catalog, part of the gender studies minor, and it's a real class with actual students. So feminist theory and art is new to us, but it's coming of age in the U.S. at large and has been around for about as long as I have. The first feminist art program in the U.S. was started by artist Judy Chicago in 1971 in Fresno, California. She joined up with Miriam Shapiro at Cal Arts in 1972 where they put together the Woman House exhibition. You can check out me and Candace Greathouse talking about that on an earlier Peachy Keen episode. Now, Judy Chicago has got some serious style. She's still kicking it at almost 80 years old. But when it comes to her and Shapiro, I'm all about Shapiro's work. She's really known for merging craft media, like quilting, into what was then the very separate discipline of fine art painting. And that, you guys that listen to this know, is like my my love, the kind of play between those two uh, types of media. I love her use of collage, fabric collage, which she called fimage. Um, which brings me to today's episode with Flora Rozevsky. Now, Flora has her own sort of fromage, which she calls a florage, for obvious reasons. We talk about her work with collage and photo montage, her process, how it relates to her family and her faith, and her teaching practice as well. There's an Ethiopian saying, he who learns, teaches. Flora really embodies this idea. I enjoyed hanging out with Flora, and I think you can hear the chill vibe in the air. You can also hear a kind of loud fan or something, and I tried for hours to get rid of that thing in post-production, but it persists. It drives me crazy because I'm a recovering perfectionist, but I hope that you'll do what I did, tune out the noise, and focus in on the calm power that is Flora Rozevsky. Enjoy. Okay, so I'm going to let you listen so you can kind of hear what it sounds like. 
You don't have to wear these. I'll wear them during the thing. Testing, testing. You can hear me, sure and you can. can hear. I like that. <laughs> For someone who has tinnitus in one ear, that's. Very good. Oh yeah, so you can hear it that's pretty very good. good. Okay, yeah, it should. It's you know. Only you, one ear. <laughs> one eye is bad, the other eye is good. Oh, this is a comfy chair too. Usually, I sit on the floor with people, or no. This is a nursing chair. This was my daughter's oh. chair. You know those chairs mm-hmm. they buy. She was ready to give away. I said, "Hold it." <laughs> Covered in my rocker. I said, this is, I call it the nap chair. The nap chair. When I close the curtains and I'm tired. Yeah. I never recovered it. It's kind of, she was ready to. (laughs) So you take naps. So we're sitting. No, I mean. (laughs) You don't take naps in your studio sometimes? Occasionally. Occasionally. So I'm going to describe. We're sitting in your <laughs> studio. We're here at Sycamore Place Galleries, right? Sycamore Place Art Gallery and Studios. Gallery and Studios, and this is in Decatur. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been here a couple of times, and there's a gallery attached to it. And there's how many artist studios in here? Um, about 13. Some of them are shared. This is my own. It's about 10 by 14 feet. Okay. Uh, one writer described it as a big closet. <laughs> Because um, I'm a collage artist, so there's a lot of stuff uh-huh. that is stored here. You know, stuff that I use, I say, oh, I'll use it for my collage. Well, it doesn't look so messy. You've got everything it's organized, kind of... but it's organized stuff. Right. Yeah. And I'm always purging and cleaning and saying, okay, do I need this? Do I need that? Mm-hmm. And, um, I have the same thing. I see containers full of ribbons over there. Right. Um, right, fabric. Some fabric. But a lot of the ephemera or found papers are from my father-in-law, who, a blessed memory, he died in 2003, I think it was. And he never threw anything out. He was 98 years old. Mm-hmm. So I saved, a, not all of what he saved, but a lot of it. And I use it in my work. Mm-hmm. That's nice. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of... Um, finding a use for those I'm going through that same thing when my grandmother is 95 right now right. my mom is moving and so she's giving me all these old photos and everything well the funny thing is when you are sometimes I'll make copies of things because I don't want to cut the originals right so then you end up with two things yeah <laughs> so you're not really getting rid of much and if you look at the boxes there under the table uh-huh. those are all photographs of my family uh, going back 20 years Wow. You know, when CVS, you get two for one yeah. before yeah. digital cameras. <laughs> yeah, so you exactly. always, Of course, you always double get prints. Two, double prints. So now I say to my children, and wherever they are, I say, well, would you like these photos of Jake and Will, who are now 21 and 19, and when they were babies? And she said, Mom, those are the pictures I sent you. <laughs> <laughs> they don't want them. So she has copies of all of them. Correct. So, yeah. um, you know, my husband and I, we it's very hard to cut, throw away a picture of a grandchild. Yeah. Just even though you don't need it. So I use it in my art. That's a good idea. Like these are, I use it for color and texture, and then I feel, okay, it has another purpose. Mm-hmm. So bef- before we get too much into talking about your pieces, which we went right into, <laughs> I wanted to ask you a little bit more about this space. So how long have you been in here? Um, I came here right after my father-in-law had to move from his apartment, which was below us, where I had a second bedroom as my studio and mm-hmm. his sun porch. So I would kind of keep an eye on him while I worked. Mm-hmm. And that was in the, um, I would say around 2001 or somewhere in there. 
Okay. So I was looking for a space because we lived in an apartment and there was no room to really spread out. Did you live in Decatur? Oh, right. I still live in the same apartment complex okay. near Tuckle Hill, right, near Decatur, not far from here. So very near. So I think in the Decatur focus or there was some little ad that said the G-Miles Gallery had space. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, in Decatur, that's nice. So I looked at it, and I kind of thought it would be perfect, which mm-hmm. it was. And then the um, Sylvia Cross took over when Deborah sold her, um, you know, stake in the, as being the owner of the gallery. And I've been here probably for about 15 years or more. 15 years. And how or long have like you that. been in Decatur? Uh, forever. I mean, I moved here into Atlanta from upstate New York in 1995. 95? Right, before the okay. Olympics. Yes. Or during, or just... So you were here for the Olympics. Right. Right, right We had just moved. We moved in, uh, right around November. Yeah. So that's an interesting time yeah, to Yeah, and that was um, a very big move for us, coming from upstate New York. Mm-hmm. And once you leave the winters of upstate New York... <laughs> you don't want to get... No, you don't like the traffic here. But I had a daughter living here, and then another daughter moved down, so... We did, and my father-in-law, we moved him down. So we have family, you know, and that uh, that to me was important that I not pick a city, or Bernie and I not pick a city that we didn't have any family. So you had two daughters come here before you. Well, one, uh, Carrie is a professor at Emory. She's still there, and uh, she wasn't uh, pregnant at the time, but she then had saw Anna Mae grow up, you know, being born here. So, and then she had Iris. And um, so it was a, a very... But my youngest daughter, she was up in Binghamton and said, Mom, there's no one here anymore. And so she came down. And then she got married. And had, she has a little girl who lived nearby. But my other kids live in New York. Something just got loud. What was that? Is it air conditioner? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think so. It's weird the things this mic picks up. I think it is some kind of fan that just came on or some kind of... I really don't know. Oh, well. We'll have to see if we can try and edit this. This building, by the way, was an old um, car repair shop. Oh. That's what it was originally. And then Deborah Miles or somebody converted it into an art studio space. A car repair shop. Right. So the gallery, which is that big room, has windows, if you look at it, like the, that go up, and that's where the cars would be driven in and be put up on top. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of an interesting history of the building. Yeah. yeah now we're surrounded by these high-rise townhouses and you know, gentrification. It's very different. And I met you through the Women's women's Caucus. Is it for the arts or of the art? I always say it I wrong. I think it's Women's Caucus of the Arts. Of the Arts. Yeah. Um, and do they have anything official to do with this space? No. 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 They, we rented the space okay. for that pop-up show, Art of the Protest. Mm-hmm. And Sylvie does rent out that gallery space to artists and to groups. SCAD has had shows... Um, I can have a show there as one of the studio artists if I want. Um, there's a holiday show coming up. But no, WCA was looking for a space. And because of the book festival, it was just a neat 
you know, a place to have the show. Because mm-hmm. you had an audience coming to the festival and, you know, or the protest was using words in many of the pieces or had a literal storytelling quality to it. Right. So that was, that's why we picked the Art and Activism Committee said, how about here? And how long have you been involved with the Women's Caucus? From the very beginning. Okay. I didn't realize, you know, but when I moved to, I'm a joiner kind of a person, uh-huh. you know, to network. <laughs> and um, I was, you know, I am an artist. And coming from a small city, you know, Binghamton, the whole population is 50,000. Now it's even less, I think. And that, is that near Syracuse? It's south of Syracuse, okay. near Ithaca. But it's um, three hours from New York City. Mm-hmm. It's a very, you know, farming, manufacturing. But a lot of the manufacturing left. It's a little bit like, I don't want to say the Rust Belt of the Midwest, but mm-hmm. it was not a growing economy. And so, um, anyway, so I saw, again, you know, my antenna picked up that there was this group called Women's Caucus of Art, which I had never heard of. And I went to a meeting, and there were very few of us. It was like, very few. Ann Rolls was, I think she was the president or coordinator at the time. It had just formed, so I didn't realize that. (laughs) I became the program person. (coughs) And I remember having a program. We used to do these gallery hops. That was one of my ideas. So you'd go to different galleries and have lunch after, you know. And I had this great program. It was downtown Atlanta, and and I kept waiting for all these people to show up, and it was just me. Yeah. So it was very small. But in 2005, Atlanta hosted the national WCA convention. Mm -hmm. And that turned it around because Mm -hmm. people said, what is this group? And people joined and... Uh, we had a wonderful show in Castleberry with Diane House's uh, gallery in uh, Castleberry Hill in mm-hmm. Atlanta. Uh, we had a catalog. Uh, we got many women involved. And from then we have grown. And I think now the art and activism component has just exploded. It's been very exciting to see yeah. all these you know, women and some men too. I want to say mm-hmm. there are men that are interested in the topics we have. Mm-hmm. These are artists. Some of them are spouses of our, or, you know, you know, of our members. Right. So it's not exclusive. You know that you have to be a woman, <clears throat> mm-hmm. but it did start in the '70s nationally. Right. I was wondering. Uh, you know, I wanted to get your perspective as somebody who's been in it for a long time. Like you know, from this women's group because it seems like there's kind of waves of like do we even need the women's group and like you said there's been a lot of interest lately so it seems like we still do need yeah I, that's an excellent question because in the 70s it definitely was a lack of women in museum shows in books um, they it was a very male oriented society and it was a group of women you know, this is the time of Gloria Steinem and Bella Abzug, and they were, we have members today, uh, like a Callahan McDonough, for instance, and I, I'm sure she wouldn't mind using, me using her name, but she was a little younger than me, or what maybe, but she was an ardent feminist. She was out there as an artist saying, we have to do something about women being more recognized, that we're not just at home, 
you know, doing little craft projects. Right. And her work is amazing. And um, so she was right up there. I think I never thought of, you know, some people, some artists don't like to be labeled. Right. They don't even want to be labeled as a woman artist. Right. Or as a, um, if they come from a religious background, I'm a Jewish artist. Right. Or or black American artist or an Indian artist. You're an artist. Right. And I'd say half of people feel that way. Uh, But I don't see anything wrong if you have different identifications of how you feel. Um, But I I think just being an artist is important. I think being a woman artist today, I think we still have ceilings to conquer. But it's gotten better. Um, But we're not... Sometimes I do feel a little bit of um, a bias, but I think it's that balance issue, too. Family balance? Well, you know, women... It's it's hard to balance working in your studio, being an artist, whatever whatever career you have. Right. The ideal is to work, I think, for, and I shouldn't say women and men, but you know, part time career where you can work at home part of the time. Where, um, but women have so many more choices. I have three daughters. They have a whole different um, viewpoint about work and family. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's one right answer. Right. So I become more of a, I won't call it a feminist, more of an activist later in my life. Right. Uh, right now, I would say it's a, a real important part of my work. But yet the family is still part of my work, too. So it's, you know. It's interesting. I'm, you know, this podcast is focusing on women, art, and the South, particularly. And I'm curious, since you are originally from New York and now you're in the South, I've noticed that a lot of the women I've interviewed have so far been around the Atlanta area and have thought that, you know, Atlanta is pretty much run by women in terms of the art community, um, which I think is true, especially compared to somewhere like, say, New York City, which I also lived there for a decade. Um, That's a good point. I never really thought about it, but you're right. But I personally worry that that's because men don't go into the arts as much in the South. I know I grew up in the South and I feel like there's that attitude that it's more of a women's, like, like you said, like we're at home doing craft or it's not perceived as much as an intellectual activity as it was when I was in New York. It's more perceived as, you know, women, I teach now and all of my students are female. And to me, that also is a problem. Like, why are there no men Men in in my classes? Well, that goes back to where women can be doctors now, they're more than half of physicians are women. Um, you have women in any who are running some corporations, not a lot, but there are more. Um, yet are men really filling up more nursing, more teaching, elementary school, uh, social workers? So those are the jobs that you always thought women were going to, you know, the nurturing kind right. of work. So there's a, there's a blurring right now. But I think that's interesting. I never thought about in uh, the Atlanta area, but there is a lot of leadership among women. I think I don't look at gender as, you know, the defining reason why someone should run for mayor. Or I know that we do want more women running for, polit- for in politics, but, you know, who's at home taking care of the kids, you know? 
So you need a spouse or a partner that's going to be really supportive. Right. And But that goes whether you're a man or a woman. Right. It's a, it's a team effort. You can't, you know, if you do it. But I grew up, I don't know if I, it's funny, with all the labels, I never think of myself as a Southern artist. But you said you've been here forever. But I've been here for 20, <laughs> over 21 years. So that's a, you know, has the South defined me at all? Um, I don't know. I, I really, what is the South? I mean, Atlanta is a cosmopolitan mixture of people. Atlanta is I think different. if I go yeah. out into the hinterlands, <laughs> there's much more, I would say, a conservative feeling. But it's it. There's a religious part of me that I lo- that's very important in my life, mm-hmm. and I find that people who are not of my religion respect that greatly because they have a fa- they they like the idea that I have this faith inner spirituality, and so there's a lot of respect, and um, that's kind of interesting to me. Hmm. And I work with interfaith groups mm-hmm. a lot. That's a, another part of my work. But in Atlanta, mostly. Right, right. The interfaith. Yeah. Um, it's a leadership council. I just did a workshop at Emory with the inter, inter-religious religious council with Reverend um, Lisa Garvin. Mm-hmm. And it was great working with students of different faiths. So, you know, that there is a... Re- I think the South does have a little more of this religious um, aspect or spirituality. So I, I do feel a comfort level there. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, even though, you know, I guess, uh, how large is the Jewish community in Atlanta? It's pretty um, Atlanta is the 11th largest Jewish community in the United States. Mm-hmm. That was, I don't know which year that study was made. There so about large. 100, 100, <laughs> well, but it's not like New York, Chicago, Los right. Angeles, and Philadelphia, and Miami. Those are your larger numbers. But um, I think it's about 100,000 with about 30 synagogues. Mm-hmm. This is metro Atlanta. I'm not including Savannah or the state of Georgia. Right. Metro Atlanta, you know, within driving. Yeah. Distance. I grew up in Albany in South Georgia. I think we have one synagogue. Well, one is pretty good. <laughs> um, but uh, the, Atlanta has a, a very wide spectrum, mm-hmm. uh, but not everyone belongs to a synagogue. Right. You know, our, our religion is also very based on the home. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to go to the building to feel that spirituality. In fact, right now, as we speak, it's in between our new year. Right. So this is very auspicious for me (laughs) because it's a very wonderful time of the year when you think, you reflect. Mm -hmm. And you said you were being interviewed by, what is the... The Atlanta Jewish Times. The Atlanta Jewish That's Times. That's coming up. And does that have to do with the new year, or is it... A- no, they... Um, I did a cover. In fact, I brought it with me to show you uh, for them, okay. uh, for their uh, Rosh Hashanah issue, my work. They licensed it. And the writer saw it, and she really liked it. And she called me and said, I'd like to know more about you, you know, or whatever. And I'd like to come to your home and, you know, just see what you do, what you collect. Mm -hmm. Because I've I've worked with synagogues. I design things for 
you know, Jewish institutions. But that's not all my work, but a good part of it. So, yeah, I spent a, a, a while looking at your website, and you have a really large range of work. And it's to me, it was very interesting, the kind of combination of illustration, uh, you know, fine art. Um, there was, the work seemed to kind of purposely push those boundaries that could be either or. Like you said, you do... You did this illustration for a magazine cover. Right. You also have work that is in galleries. You have an, uh, two exhibitions up, right? Work well, I have um, one. Uh, thank you for asking. One, <laughs> one show is a group show. Um, it's part of the Atlanta Celebrates Photography. You know, in October, it's a big deal yes. here in Atlanta. And the B Complex Gallery, um, Anita Arles, who's a member of the Women's Caucus of Art, but she put out a call that if anyone had work, her theme was what the world needs now. Mm-hmm. And um, I had some work that I thought was apropos using photograph cutouts. It had to use photography in the work in some way. Right. So I think a lot of the work is probably straight on photography, but there will be some collage work where people like me do use cut-up photography in the work. Mm-hmm. And the yeah. second exhibition that you're in, I noticed there was in one Chattanooga, okay. Tennessee. Um, that work is in a great little gallery in a small community um, that does wonderful work on Judaic themes that are universal. Mm-hmm. The curator is Anne Treadwell, and I give a shout out to her. She's fantastic, and she puts together these shows that she wants people to talk about them. So her theme this a month was walls W-A-L-L-S in any way you can think about it right so again I had work you know sometimes you don't always have work that may fit a theme right but she chose two of my pieces and that's a group show through um, the end of October so walls I can see why she would pick that theme right now Mm -hmm. (laughs) well but it was very highly interpretive right and the piece one I sent her was because I this is a philosophy I have that when the world is so chaotic out there whatever it is whether it's God forbid a hurricane earthquakes um, you know financial health wise politics whatever that I find sanctuary when I walk into my home mm-hmm. now some people may find their sanctuaries at work because right. if their home is troubled maybe their sanctuary is their office to get out of the house. Or their studio. Or their studio, right, (laughs) right, right. So um, a lot of my work, uh, so I sent her a piece about gun control where um, for the Shabbat or the day of rest, the woman is, uh, you know, in this space that is not violent. So that was her wall of her home. Mm -hmm. And then the other piece was a tablecloth with collage of the outside perimeter being a newspaper clippings of all the horrendous headlines that you read and yet within the squares of the tablecloth, the checkered tablecloth were drawings I did of what you do when you do come home. You read a book you play the piano, you cook you're with your husband or partner you're um, maybe doing something at your computer but it's a sanctuary. Mm -hmm. So I call that personal sanctuary. So those walls again are very personal. And much uh, more uh (laughs) When I thought of the theme of the show, you know, you're thinking about walls as a, as a protective right. 
uh, safe space. Right. I'm sure I, there. I haven't. I may go up to see that show before it comes down. It's a two-hour drive from Atlanta. I have to get a ride. But I'm sure there were some that were more political. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. But I think Anne's point is that you know, look at all these creative ways of expressing that theme. Right. From different viewpoints, and then have conversations about it. That's what visual art is about. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a quiet way of looking at life. It's not like music or more like reading. Right. You know, That's interesting. And I wish that. Um, I think the average person, I don't know if there is such a thing as an average person, but (laughs) they say that when you uh, look at work, artwork in a museum, the average time, people look at the, really look at the work is a few seconds. They call it wall surfing. Yes. You know? This is a pet peeve of mine. I know. And so (laughs) we all do it. Or you put the earphones on and you say, okay, let's see what the artist has to say or the curator. But what if I tell people, pick out one piece of art or two and stand in front of that piece and really look at it? Yes. And what do you see and what do you feel and why do you like it? And then read the statement. Right. Afterwards. Yeah. I like that. I don't like to put cards next to work because people don't look at the work. But people become... um, they want that explanation and then that shuts down their experience right so someone who looks at my wall piece who without that story I just told you is going to have a whole different interpretation of it which is fine the way that you're you know when I looked at your pieces um and I, I want to talk to you about teaching in a second because I teach and I see that you teach a lot of workshops um and I'm currently teaching this feminist theory um, and criticism in contemporary art class where I've been looking at a lot of, like, uh, uh, we just read Mira Shore's Patrilineage, where artists, you know, are kind of uh, pressured into associating their work with male masters instead of female wow. masters. <laughs> yeah? Have you ever thought about <laughs> no, that before? No, no, But, of course, I, I love artists like Alice Neal. She's mm-hmm. one of my favorite artists. So I I noticed on your website, of course, anytime you do collage, people are going to say Matisse. Right. Well, he did the cutouts. Yes. The scissors. The cutouts and the scissors. But when I looked at your work, uh, you know, you had a few pieces. You have your work kind of divided up into different categories on your website. And you had a folk art category that you had done works with children's markers. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I found those pieces so beautiful. And they really reminded me of Faith Ringgold. Oh, right. Do you? Of course. Yeah. I I have her books. Yes. Her. Uh, I collect children's books, too, with illustrations that I like. I just bought one at the Carlos bookstore at Emory, if anybody wants great books. Yeah, I need to go check that out. Oh, it's fantastic. They have a great bookstore for but that kind of, those visions that you had of your family, mm-hmm. I mean, they're done with children's marker, but they're so detailed, and everybody has on, like, the individual pieces of jewelry that right. people have on, and they're, you know, really portraits that speak to you, and they're sitting around the dinner table. Right. Um, those, those, I used to call those drawings florages. Yes. <laughs> and again, speaking those of dr- uh, right, right. matrilineage, I'm right. assuming that's a reference to Miriam Shapiro. Do you? Well, she did Fimages, mm-hmm. but Florage is taking my name Flora. Right. And then just adding the A-G like a collage. It's, they're really not collages. They're drawings. You're right. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's an interesting story about how I started those mm-hmm. little drawings. 
having four young children, you know, they were like little steps. They were two years apart, practically. And I used to take them to the park, the merry-go-round in Binghamton. And, you know, to keep myself happy, I took um, a lunch pail filled with markers and some drawing paper. So when they were playing on the jungle gym and, you know, the little thing that goes around, the Mm teeter-totters and stuff, I would be there drawing. Or maybe Molly was in the carriage. I was pushing her little, little stroller. And I started drawing my children and family. And, um, and then we would share a house in the summertime, and I would keep a calendar of these little tiny drawings. Uh, that's how I... But I never thought of it as being art. It was more like just what I did, like breathing. A journal. A journal. It was just for me. And when I came to Atlanta, I have to thank... Um, there were a committee from the new Jewish home here, the Bremen uh, for Senior Citizens. And they liked my work, and they said, we would like you to do a series of 12 drawings of intergenerational uh, Jewish uh, expressions of holidays and festivals. And I said, I could do that. So when I did the Passover Seder, I said, well, who are my models? They're going to be Grandpa Harry. My husband, my children, <laughs> me, our dog. And then I took out all my stuff from my dining room closet, you know, our Seder plate and our cups. And I closed my eyes and I think, okay, what kind of memories do I have? So on the, that drawing, the detail, you'll see the gefilte fish out on the kitchen countertop. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of personal storytelling in those drawings. And at the home right today, in Atlanta, on every floor of those four uh, floors, there are three drawings that are big of those that tradition series. How large are those drawings? The original drawings are 11 by 14, but they were blown up into prints and framed by the Jewish home. So they're there. And then I did more work. I expanded the work. I'd like to do more. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's kind of an older way of drawing right now. But sometimes I still older way for you, right? Because you know, as an artist, you right you say, okay, I'm in my phase of abstract work or photograph cutout work. But yet, I still do those kind of drawings for my family in these books, which I didn't bring. You probably would have enjoyed seeing them because I'm on journal number five, and when we go on vacations. Um, I draw like that. Nice. With collage. And each of my eight grandchildren, well, not the youngest one, they say, Grandma, what are you going to do with those books? Mm-hmm. They all want them. Uh-huh. Because they're in them. Yes. And I said, well, I have eight of you. <laughs> and maybe I just have to keep living to keep <laughs> filling up the books. But I don't know. That's going to be a, I don't know. Right That's- now I'm not thinking about it. That's so beautiful that they oh they feel each so connected quietly they come to me you know uh, <laughs> thinking they're the only one asking for it. So you said that that's not you know that's a style that you kind of come back to, but uh, we're we're sitting in your studio here, and the things that you have on the wall now is this more your kind of current style that that, that we're looking at now? Well, these these photograph cutouts. Um, I belong to as I say I'm a joiner, so I belong to the Atlanta. Um, photography group, APG, mm-hmm. and I have to also thank Lisa Tuttle for, uh, she saw my work at another show and said, Flora, you should join the uh, 
the Atlanta Photography Group. They're having a show called Concepts, and your work would be great because you cut up old photographs. And I did, and I entered work, and then um, the curator picked five of the little pieces, very similar to that. And they were in a show, and then I kept making more of that kind of work. So I do enjoy it. I like... It, those are not as message storytelling quality as some of my other work, mm-hmm. you know, which I... So, but yet, if you, if you look, you know, the photos are from vacations. They're from people's clothing. They're still from those boxes of family photographs. But then I detach the symbolism of who they were. Mm-hmm. So I call the series sometimes Disentangled or um, Reflections. And it becomes more universal, yeah. like you're saying, because, it, you know... It's great. I love to work with pattern in my work. And when you see a pattern, you mm-hmm. might not know which one of your relatives was wearing it, but you can look at it and be like, oh, that was the late 70s. Right. Or was that so-and-so's house that that was Right. From? But they're, they're intimate pieces. And, and sometimes you almost don't even have to know where those came from. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another piece here called Left Behind, these, this journal, a book that I bought at Kudzu Antiques. Uh-huh. Because I'm always looking for found objects that just talk to me. Mm-hmm. And this was a journal, an old leather journal that was had missing pages, like little squares that were, you know, and Katrina had just happened. And so I did this, I became like um, manic about it, but I had to fill up every page with cut up collage. And I called it Left Behind. And then you think of Houston, and you think of what happened in Florida and in Mexico. And the tra- and Puerto Rico and the tragedy of people that had to leave behind things, the material stuff, mm-hmm. and so it makes you question: Okay, is all this stuff really that important? Right. The stuff. Maybe is it just to be safe and start all over again? So this whole um, concept of cutting up, saving, hmm. makes you think. But yeah. that's a subconscious. You know, there were artists like um, Paul Clay, uh, Kandinsky, particularly him, Miro, who were, they had a very subconscious, dreamlike quality in their work. Right. You didn't know where it came from. And that's when I work. That's how my mind works. It doesn't work. Maybe there's no plan. Right. It's very intuitive. It's very intuitive. Yeah, you. I mean, really, it's. I, I don't feel like there's any other way to work. I mean, you can. I mean, for me, the same. Mm-hmm. You have to kind of let the work go where it's going. Yeah, but I do like working on themes. Sometimes a show like WCA, mm-hmm. um, when they had the Dolls in the City show about sex and human trafficking. Oh yeah. I knew nothing about that topic. I did research on it. And I came up with these studies of using hairpins that were twisted oh. and um, into the paper. And they became uh, the hairpins that were steel and ball bearing. And, you know, just the name of the pins were so interesting to me. But I started to twist them. And you made the paper, too? No, that paper I bought in binders. It was a uh, art paper made in Japan. Mm. But I liked the texture of it. And then... I just put those pins within those circles. 
I've done some reading on that sex trafficking in, in Atlanta. It was so huge. disturbing to me. Huge. I didn't realize how huge it was. Yeah, it's very big. And uh, speaking of Emory, I think there's a professor there, Melvin Connor, who wrote a book called Women After All, where he talks about that's where I was, became uh, aware of that. Yeah, it was, well, the, I have to thank, you know, it was really the WCA show that made me aware of it. I had not, you know, it was under the radar. Yeah. But now it's out there. And the mammal show that we just had a year ago, mm-hmm. WCA. And that's really what started art and activism, was on that topic, yeah. sex and human trafficking. I mean, it's a topic that is improving consciousness raising, but the rescue operation is still very tiny. Yeah. It's only 5% of girls get rescued and boys are involved, and it's human trafficking and because we live near a very big airport and it's 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 people and it's not it the people who are perpetrating it who want this crazy sex are are I hate to say it but they're middle class or upper middle class people they get a I don't know it's just a sick kind of a you know how do you stop the demand it's horrible it's very disturbing <laughs> right right but I, I think that art you know, so some of it, yeah, some of my work is very abstract, but then you can be on the pulpit of, with your work mm-hmm. and say, okay, look at my work and have it make you think about something. Mm-hmm. And so this is maybe a good segue to start talking about teaching, which is, you know, not, mm-hmm. not exactly a pulpit, but, uh, you know, it's like it. I see it as a, like a furthering of my art practice in a lot of ways. The same things I'm interested in talking about in my work. I'm also interested in teaching about. So what kind of, um, you teach workshops, and where do you teach these workshops? I teach them, well, I had one at Emory University. It was at a retreat for interreligious studies. I'm doing a workshop at Temple Sinai, um, which will be open to the community through the, I think it's called the Atlanta Interfaith Leadership Council, Mm -hmm. which are lots of people, adults who are retired ministers or rabbis or anyone who's interested in interfaith uh, education. Um, I did some workshops at the Bremen Museum. Um, I used to run the family Sunday studio program at the High Museum uh, for 12 years before I retired from that. So uh, those were workshops that were really fun because I had to use the permanent collection or visiting artists and do research. I love to do research and then come up with um, an art activity. Mm-hmm. Um, I also did a workshop at the temple uh, on a Holocaust theme that I came up with, um, a wonderful program on the righteous Gentiles who helped during the Holocaust and took their lives at risk for middle school students. So I teach from, I would say, some preschool, but more, I would say, elementary school, middle school, high school, uh, college age, adults, seniors, and I specialize in the non-artist. Mm-hmm. The people who have their hands folded and say, I can't do this. <laughs> and I say to them, if you come up with the idea, I will show you how you can express it visually. And they look at me like, really? <laughs> but collage is a very accessible, easy. You need a glue stick, a scissor, or you can tear, Mm -hmm. and a piece of paper. 
And if you don't like what you did, you take another piece of paper. So it's not like working with gold or oil paints or... And so I get amazing results from it. And they're always shocked. You know, like, oh my gosh, look what I just did, you know. But another thing is the teacher. At the end of every program I do, there has to be a half hour of a critique. It's not just make the project and go home. Right. Very important. And if you're still working on your little piece, I say to them, it's okay. You can continue working. But for those of us who have finished, um, let's talk about it. And before the artist talks about their work, I say, okay, in the group, what do you think that Susie or whoever or Jimmy, what do you think he was trying to say with his work? And they interpret it, and the artist is beaming because sometimes it's totally something totally different. (laughs) But it's okay because they're talking from their experience. And then I say, okay, now let's hear what the artist has to say. And it's always a very big success that dialogue and I and I tell them the story of the three second rule mm-hmm. and I said I just want you to know you really were looking at the work even if it was only for five minutes how many seconds is that it's what 600 you know seconds or whatever so I think that's where art really can become a wonderful um, dialogue mm-hmm. and the last workshop I did the reverend she got so excited over it she didn't want the kids to take their work home so she said, would you mind if any of you could, can I have it for a little while? And she's going to hang it in their uh, new student lounge at Emory so more people can see the work. Nice. Yeah. So, and let them interpret it. So it was, it was but I think education is, is key. And I love teaching. It's coming up with the right lesson. Once you come up with the right art lesson, the teacher should not be um, interfering with that student. I, in fact, I usually work on my own piece. I don't, I don't look at their work I, until the end, or I don't. The worst thing a teacher can do is put their hand on that person's hand and say, oh, no, 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 put it that way. Mm. Right. And they're all different. Or, oh, no, this is the way you have to draw the the circle oh really (laughs) or no the face has to be a certain color really no I agree well um, is there anything else that you want to share with the world at large fun you know I love sharing my love I love being an artist Uh, it took me a while to say I am an artist I did not go to uh, art school you know, in those years in the 1950s and early 60s, women, again, did not have a lot of choices. Mm. We went, we went to, I went to college. I have a degree, right. but it was an elementary education. I got married. I was, how old was I, 20, and had Carrie within that first year of marriage. People were counting on their fingers to make sure I, you know, was <laughs> at least nine months. <laughs> and um, I didn't teach anymore. But I went back to school. When my kids were old enough, like your children's ages, I decided I wanted more education. Mm-hmm. And what did you do? Where did you go? I went to Binghamton University. They had a first-timers night in the paper. They said, anyone who has a degree will make it easy for you to come and register. You don't have to go through a lot of red tape, which appealed to me. So I went into this gym at the campus, 
and went to the new, you know, wherever. And I signed up for creative writing, and then I took beginning drawing, and I, it changed my life. It, I just loved um, going back to school. And I used to walk to the campus and take the bus home, and it got me out of the house, and I was starting to really become much more serious with my work. I didn't realize how much I loved art. So it's interesting that you say it took you a long time to call yourself an artist because I did go to school and it still took me a long time. How, uh, when did you finally just say, you know what, this is the, this, I'm going to just go with this. I'm an artist. Um, I think it was, you know, if you ask a lot of people who influenced you the most, you know, other than a parent or, I would have to say it was a teacher. Mm. And James Rudlan, he was a professor at Syracuse University. He had come down to teach the art teachers of the Bingen area to get their credits for their um, master's degrees. They, they were required to take a certain amount of credits. And a cousin of mine said, Flora, you like to draw, because I would be at the park drawing all these little drawings. Why don't you take this class? And Molly was a baby at the time, and I said, oh, good, one night a week. <laughs> I'm saying to my husband, I'm out of here. I'm going to Shenango Valley High School to take a class with a professor of art. And Jim Ridlin, he called me the civilian. I was the only one in that class who was not a trained art artist. Mm-hmm. Everyone else, they were tired, they had worked all day, they just wanted to get it over with. There I was, like a kindergarten kid, like wide-eyed, open, and like, oh, this is so much fun. And he loved me, and I loved him. I mean, not loved. I mean, I, he liked what I was doing, and I was different, and I was excited. And he was the one who said, you are an artist. And I said, really? Because my first, <laughs> my first inclination was, I'm a mother who right. likes to draw. Mm-hmm. And he convinced me. And then I took the classes at Binghamton University, and there was a professor there who basically kicked me out of the class. He said, you do not need to be in here with all these undergraduates. You need to have your own studio and get on with it. You don't need me to be critiquing you. You have to critique yourself. Mm. And I said, Angela, but I like having you there. He was like the crutch. Right. And he pushed me out. He said, you've been at Binghamton University now. Like, you've taken a lot of our classes. I was in the graduate class. I didn't take it to get a degree. It was just for pure enjoyment. Right. And he was also a big influence in my life. So two professors. You don't, you don't know how they really can influence you. But I have to thank them. My husband went along with it. He, <laughs> he um, but it's not a hobby. Right. You know, it's really a passion. It's like breathing. I don't think of art as a separate subject. That's why I do these journals on vacations. Because right. that's how I relax. That's how I, instead of reading or reading a book, I will draw. Well, Flora, it's been very enjoyable to talk to you. I love to hear everything you had to say. Well, that's really sweet. Thank you. Thank you for coming all the way from Athens. (laughs) Thanks so much, and Happy New Year to Flora. I know she was really busy since we met up during High Holy Days, and I really appreciate her taking some time out to chat with me. You can find links to some of the things we talked about, 
like the Women's Caucus for Art of Georgia, and images of Flora's studio and work on the Peachy Keen page of my website at vivianliddell.com. That's V-I-V-I-A-N-L-I-D-D-E-L-L. In lieu of asking you to support the podcast like I usually do, I'm going to ask you to consider donating to our fellow Americans in Puerto Rico. You can find a link for United for Puerto Rico on the Peachy Keen page. Even a tiny amount would be helpful. It's super easy, and you can even use PayPal. I'll be talking with Kelly Kristen Jones about her photography and her work surrounding Confederate markers on Tuesday, October 10th, so you can expect for that episode to drop in mid-October. Excited to have that conversation. As usual, I'll be keeping you posted on Instagram as that happens. Until then, I hope your early days of fall are peachy keen. Going to take a page from my favorite podcaster, Mark Marin, and do a little of my own music here at the end. Elaborate, more elaborate version of the harmonica that I always play. <laughs>